You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this episode of The Spear. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today we're joined by Carl Blanke, a Marine Corps infantry officer who's going to tell us a story about his time as a platoon commander in the 1st Battalion, 5th Marines during the invasion of Iraq. Carl, thanks for coming on onto The Spear. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tim. Would you do a little bit of a favor for us and introduce yourself so that the audience gets to know who you are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, today, I'm a high school teacher in Southern California, um, but uh, many years ago, I was a platoon commander in the Marine Corps. Um, I joined uh, before 9-11, so I joined in 2000. Uh, I kind of did things in maybe the opposite of the traditional order. I was already married with kids. Uh, I was a little bit older coming in. Uh, I was actually would have needed an age waiver if I would have waited a few more months to join. But uh, anyway, went, went to officer candidate school and in the Marine Corps, then went straight into the pipeline, went to the basic school, uh, was able to get infantry as my MOS. And uh, then first assignment, once I finished infantry officer course, was off to 1st Battalion, 5th Marines at Camp Pendleton in California. And did you come into the Marine Corps wanting to be a grunt? Yeah, that was that was really my goal. Um, it was, for me, I, I had spent a little time in a high school junior ROTC unit, got a little exposure to the Marine Corps. Uh, my dad had served in the armor, in the army in the 50s. Um, and I knew I wanted to do combat arms. And then the more I learned about the Marine Corps, I really felt like the infantry was probably the right fit for me. How long was that training pipeline? Pipeline was 12 months total. So we did three months of officer candidate school. Then we went to the basic school, did six months there. The basic school is all Marine officers, regardless of MOS, go through the basic school. The idea is that every Marine officer can serve at least as a provisional rifle platoon commander. And then you also compete for your MOS while you're at the basic school. So uh, while I was there, I was able to get an infantry slot and then, uh, as we say in the Marine Corps, I went across the street. The The MOS school for infantry uh, for officers is there at Quantico as well, where the basic school is located. And that's a three-month course as well. So 12 months from the beginning of OCS until graduating IOC and being ready to uh, head to the fleet. While you were at IOC, did you have any uh, other significant life changes? 
Yeah, I, I did. Again, I didn't do it in in the uh, preferred format in terms of family planning, but uh, had my third child while I was at infantry officer course. Uh, the instructors were nice enough to let me come out of the field uh, for 24 hours to be there for the birth of my son. He was born during the weapons platoon live fire, and then uh, they picked me up uh, in the parking lot when I came back from the hospital and went straight back in with the platoon for the rest of the, for the uh, field exercise. And I think as we're going to see in, in this story, or maybe some of your others, obviously you didn't suffer too much from not being at Weapons Platoon Week uh, <laughs> when it comes to integrated combat arms. Yeah, no, it, it, I, I got really lucky in my time in the Marine Corps. Uh, the Marine Corps was really good to me right after I graduated IOC and went to 1-5 as my first battalion. Um, I was able to go to a lot of awesome training exercises. I went to uh, 29 Palms and... Um, Got the uh, got to go to what was then called combined arms exercise. Uh, actually, as an assistant to the coyotes, so the instructor cadre there or the evaluator cadre, and um, was able to do uh, one of the huge exercises out in Arizona called WTI. It's prim- primarily an aviation exercise, but they take a rifle company every exercise to serve as the ground force. And we got to serve as uh, in that role. Saw a ton of fire support integration there. And uh, re- really set me up for success prior to 2003 and, and the invasion. So you went to CACs and combined arms exercise, colloquially referred to as CACs, and to WTI 2001, 2002. So I did my first, my I did two CACs in 2001 on the instructor side. Uh, in 2002, spring of 2002, I was able to go to WTI and then uh, got to go to CACs a third time, this time as the exercise force with my battalion in late 2002. Uh, so again, the timing for us could not have been better in the sense that, you know, we didn't know we would deploy in 2003, uh, but we had a CACs freshly under our belt before we went to, to Iraq in 2003. And what was life like in the pre-OIF infantry for the Marine Corps? What was your daily experience as a platoon commander? Yeah. So, um, if, if, you know, so the first, the first thing you learn is you're not in the field every week. Uh, there, there's a lot of administrative stuff that goes on. So, uh, w- when we're on a relatively administrative week, you know, we might even have live fire that week, but you know, you're largely getting up PTN in the morning, going in, working on classes, doing your, your admin stand downs or your medical stand down, whatever it might be. Um, learning a lot just from the, the more senior lieutenants in the battalion. Um, but when you do get weeks where you get to go to the field, then those are awesome, right? You're actually getting time with your Marines, working on uh, all the, the practical application type piece, really coming together on unit cohesion, working on unit SOPs, uh, really developing those core skills that are going to allow everyone to communicate, even at the implicit level in terms of knowing immediate action drills and things like that. But again, not every week is in the field. Um, the reality is you hit the fleet and there's a lot of administrative things that need to be done. And uh, so you're not constantly in the field the way you kind of dream of being when you're, when you're first going through training. In your relationship with, your, with the staff NCOs, right? what the Army calls NCOs, your staff sergeants, your, your gunnies, uh, how, much, how much interaction did you have with them? How much... How much did they help form you know, kind of the story we're going to tell and, and your understanding of life in the infantry? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, so when I first hit my battalion, the battalion had just come off deployment. And so the, de- the battalion was completely depleted. 
um, I had a, a sergeant, not a staff sergeant, as my platoon sergeant. Now he was really squared away. Um, awesome guy. He went on and was was later commissioned um, and is still a commissioned officer today. Uh, but we had a really sharp group of sergeants as the battalion started to you know get its staff and COs back in to get ready for. Um, our next deployment, though, again, we were so blessed. We had some incredible staff sergeants, a uh, wide variety of experience. We even had one who had um, combat time in Desert Storm, um, and um, their insights were, were phenomenal. Uh, it was, we really had a great relationship in the sense that it was a teamwork um, atmosphere. It was not the lieutenants versus the staff NCOs at all. Uh, you know, sometimes that happens in certain units, but we were really blessed not to have that dynamic. Uh, it was very collegial. Uh, everyone understood their roles. It's not like they were trying to be platoon commanders and we weren't trying to be platoon sergeants. We respected those roles, but there was real collaboration and uh, a real sense of teamwork that I think made us a more cohesive unit. Excellent. So it's 2002. You've come out of your uh, your CACs with 1-5 and you're getting ready to pump. What was the notification like? What was going through your head? <laughs> yeah, this is funny. So l- let me back up a little bit and go back to um, 9-11. So 9-11 happens. We're in the peacetime Marine Corps. Uh, no one had any idea anything like that was on the horizon. Um, obviously, very quickly, they took the two uh, MUs that were uh, out uh, near Afghanistan, put them together under General Madison. They were in Afghanistan in no time. Um, for us... Uh, other battalions around the Marine Corps started getting related missions. We were told in, well, it was probably October of 2001, that we would be going to Tajikistan to secure an airfield, basically to support airstrikes in and around Afghanistan. So we began an immediate workup. And uh, December of 2001, we were supposed to fly to Tajikistan. We already had our advanced party in Tajikistan. And the I think it was the night before our first main body flight, they canceled the mission. So we had already been through that cycle. Fast forward to December 2002, we were slated. Remember in December 2002, we did not know what was going to happen in terms of, are we going to evade Iraq? No one had, I mean, there was plenty of talk politically, but we did not know what the situation was um, across the military. So we were still slated to go to Okinawa and serve as the battalion landing team for the 31st Mew. Again, we already had our, this is now December, 2002, basically same thing of the previous December. We already had our advance party in Okinawa where I think it was two or three days from our first main body flight to Okinawa. They canceled our flights. They said, don't get on those planes. We're bringing your advance party back. You guys are going to Kuwait. Uh, and again, they, they didn't firmly tell us at that point. I think it was probably late January, early February when they officially gave us the word, but we all knew, right? That they're, they're telling us not to get on these flights because they got something else they need us to do. All right. So fast forward to January, February of 2003, you're in Kuwait. What is that? What What is Carl Blanc, Lieutenant Carl Blanke's life like in Kuwait? Yeah. Uh, life in Kuwait was, um, it was interesting, right? So th- there was no infrastructure there when we showed up. There, there were a couple um, areas of operation that had been established earlier um, from the, you know, sort of the, the, the Army and the Marine Corps had already had some advanced elements, but they didn't have the infrastructure um, for the battalions initially when we flowed in. So we were literally just living in two-man tents uh, in the desert and you know for basic stuff right there was not always enough food coming out of the chow hall the chow halls were still being stood up and there were times where there wasn't much you know 
much food left at the end of the line, right? When the officers, after all the enlisted had been through and the officers were eaten, you might get one sausage and a quarter cup of rice. That that might've been your meal um, for the day. So it took a little time for the logistics to come together. With that said, it did come together. We eventually got, you know, more substantial tents and whatnot, but really none of us were focused on any of that. The focus was let's train. Uh, we we assumed that we would be going into Iraq, but we don't even know that at that point, right? February 2003, we do not know if we will invade. Um, we're, we're assuming if we are, we kind of all have desert storm in our mindset where it's going to be this six-month buildup, and there's going to be a huge air campaign, and then there's going to be a ground invasion. Um, obviously, in hindsight, turned out to be totally different than that. Um, but we were expecting a long wait and, you know, more international forces to be joining us. We had the 91 mindset going in, uh, just turns out to be very different than what it was. So we'll fast forward. It's March. When do you get your briefs? When do you get your, I'm assuming you got maps at this point. Yeah, um, yeah. we actually did get, uh, we, we did get b- maps and briefs. So we eventually were told that our first battalion objective would be some of the oil refinering uh, refinery infrastructure uh, right along the border between Kuwait and Iraq in the, in the very southern end, uh, what are known as the Ramallah oil fields. And the idea that the main objective there was to make sure that Saddam did not do a repeat of 91 and just start blowing up um, oil wells and creating you know, a natural disaster uh, of smoke and environmental waste and all that. Um, so we had that several weeks before we actually pushed. We did tons of rehearsals, right? We'd sit down, you know, as officers, we would regularly sit down and hash out plans and say, okay, let's think about this. Let's war game this, et cetera. Um, while we're doing that, our Marines are doing TTB drills constantly, every day, day in, day out, um, working on that. And um, eventually the, the higher level order came together. Uh, a lot of people who served during that time will remember that General Mattis, when he ran his all the battalion commanders through a huge rock drill of what the initial 48-hour plan would be, he actually had each battalion commander put on a football jersey with their battalion numbers on it so everyone could clearly see across the division what battalion was doing what. Um, and it, it was the time was well used. I'll put it that way at every level from general Mattis working with, with his subordinate commanders down to junior officers, us, you know, platoon commanders talking, uh, talking through drills, doing rock walks down to our individual Marines, constantly taping up potential objectives, just engineering tape and, um, engineering stakes and uh, doing the best we could with just blank open fields of desert to, to train and be ready for whatever might come. Let's go to the invasion. What happens the night before in your stomach, in your head? Yeah. Well, so (laughs) uh, again, we had been there, you know, enough weeks and word had not come down. The the battalion was starting to get restless to the point that our battalion commander, um, Colonel, then Lieutenant Colonel Padilla, uh, he and the Sergeant Major talked and they said, you know what? We, we probably need to have some stress relief at this point. You know, there's been a lot of focus on combat readiness. We definitely feel we're ready, but we need some letdown time. So battalion finally said, let's do a talent show. So we did a talent show. We just had, you know, a flatbed truck. Uh, the Marines got up and of, of course the Marines are doing impersonations of, of their staff NCOs and their officers. And you know, there was a couple guitars in the battalion, believe it or not, uh, even though we're in the middle of the desert in Kuwait. Anyways, great time, but zero to that morning that then the, the uh, deployment order actually comes down, go assume 
the attack area. And uh, so that night we rolled out uh, still not, again, we had a plan. We know what we do still didn't know for sure if we had the green light, but the assumption is at this point, we're essentially going to have the green light within the next 24 hours. And um, the, the very before sunset, the next day uh, we are crossing into Kuwait or for, excuse me, crossing from Kuwait into Iraq. The story you want to tell today, yeah. how far into the invasion are we? Um, the, the, this is probably a week and a half in, maybe it's closer to two weeks in. Um, we had been, so, so I was as one five, we were part of the fifth Marine regiment and, um, then Colonel Dunford, of course, now general Dunford, uh, retired was our regimental commander. So we were part of RCT five regimental combat team five. And what we essentially would do is rotate which battalion was on point for the regiment at any one point, right? Making sure that people, you know, all the fatigue and stress is not falling on one battalion. So at one point, um, our battalion is given a sort of a side tasker. Um, and they said, Hey, there's, there's a bridge, um, over the Saddam canal, um, we need to secure this bridge because, you know, we're going to be bringing up more armored elements. We're going to need, you know, this is a nice, heavily um, structured bridge that can handle our heavy vehicles. It's not occupied. We just need you to go and secure the bridge to make sure that uh, Iraqi forces don't later decide to destroy it or something like that and prevent us from using it um, as a um, as a major supply route. So, um we get ready. We, you know, even though it, the, you know, we're told there's nobody there, the Intel reports, there's nobody there. We're still going to plan to do it as an assault in case anything goes wrong. We do. Um, and we roll in as a battalion and the Intel could not have been more wrong. Uh, it was actually probably the most well-defended position. We attacked the entire time of the invasion. Um, it had pre-registered indirect fire. Uh, it had, um, a ZSU-23 TAC-4 main gun that had been dismounted and used as a the main uh, battle gun for uh, covering the MSR as we were rolling into their position. They had well-dug trenches. Um, you know, it was, it was a well-designed position by the Iraqi military, and we rolled right into the teeth of it. Um, we had one of our Humvees took an RPG right through the front glass, um, did not detonate. Uh, I mean, just Thank God for that. Uh, but yeah, it, it was a very serious gunfight. And um, and then on top of that, right? So first, the intelligence was wrong, right? And and this, this was not the only time this happened. It was almost always the case that for us at the battalion level, we did not get accurate intelligence. And this was just maybe the most extreme of it, right? But literally, they said there's nobody there. And we come into the, this most well-defended position of the our, our entire time. Um, so. Once we got into this fight, we immediately call up for uh, close air support and our entire communications network collapses. We literally cannot get anyone up on any of the air nets, tactical air direction net, uh, helicopter request net, Tarhar net, everything had failed. Eventually we, we got them on, but there was a, like a five, 10 minute period where we had no ability to communicate with any of our aviation af assets that we were looking to pull in to help with the gunfight. Um, and so it was M16s and M240s and 50 cals and Mark 19s. Um, you know, and we had, we had our, even our company 60, uh, you know, 60 millimeter mortars in the fight. Um, but it was it was not the way we planned it. Let, let's put it put it that way. Uh, when you have a major 
um, communications collapse like that, it just happens and you're not going to stop the fight. Obviously you just got to press through. Um, and, um, things turned out well for the battalion. Um, shockingly, even though we, you know, that situation, we had no serious casualties. No one was killed in our battalion and no one was seriously injured. Um, looking back at it afterward, you know, after, after the gunfight was over and walking through the the defense defensive position, we kind of all scratched our heads. Like, how did we not take serious casualties in the, in this encounter, particularly, um, given that we didn't have air support, all the things that, you know, we would want to use in a gunfight like that. Uh, we, we were, um, very blessed and ultimately what did it come down to? The Marines were trained. They knew exactly what to do. They reacted exactly correctly. They knew their TTPs. They understood basic things at the individual level, fire and movement amongst fire teams, um, and coordinated action across platoons and companies and across the entire battalion. I'm going to go back to the start of this gunfight where you're a rifle platoon commander. Yes. In, in, in Charlie company. That's right. Where are you in the order of March? Are you on the left flank, the right flank? Where, where is Carl Blanke in which Humvee at this point? Yeah. So our entire battalion is mechanized. So, um, the only Humvees that we had going into this gunfight was our cat platoon, our combined anti-armor platoon. The entire rest of the battalion is in the amphibious assault vehicles that the Marine Corps uses essentially for his, for its armored personnel carriers. Um, Iraq was interesting because we were mechanized and trying to move quickly. Uh, we were essentially roadbound. This was not open desert warfare. This is we're going to seize a bridge on a major uh, on a major highway, and so we're literally in a battalion column. Uh, Bravo Company was the point company for us that day. Charlie Company, we, we were the second company in the battalion's order of movement. Cat, Cat of course, was up on uh, on front um, in front of Bravo Company. So Cat takes the initial engagement. Bravo Company immediately deploys um, off to the left side of the road. They immediately um, push out that way. Um, you know, if you want, you know, the terms we would often use is hammerhead left. Um, and as they go online to try to assault into this defense, uh, Bravo Company basically then, as they saw how heavy the gunfight was, called for Charlie Company to come up and reinforce them. And so we pushed off to the left further out th- from them and kind of pushed up. And then, you know, once they had basically taken the fight as far as they could, then Charlie Camp- company came in. And then by that point, as we're starting to do that, the battalion commander sent alpha company who had been the trail company, uh, in the battalion order of movement up on the right flank. So we could have, we could basically push as much frontage as a battalion, uh, into this fight as possible. So for me personally, um, I'm trying to remember where I was, I was probably in about the fourth AAV, back um might have been the third we basically at this point you know a lot of aavs have broken down so we're we're squishing a lot of marines into each aav uh so i was probably third or fourth aav back as we went into that assault and was your platoon sergeant with you or in a different my platoon sergeant was with me um my role was a little bit different because i was a weapons platoon commander so i'm not a rifle platoon commander my focus is on trying to get those airstrikes working um, the 60 millimeter mortar section is traveling with me so I can direct that indirect fire for, for our rifle company level, you know, where to best place them to work on geometries of fire. So we don't have overhead mortar fire, all those sorts of considerations. And, uh, so my platoon sergeant was with me, uh, but it was not the traditional, uh, rifle platoon, uh, commander role that I was in at that point. 
how big is the 60 section in the Marines? Uh, 60 sections in the Marines is tiny. We've got three squads of three Marines each, and then you have a section leader. So you're talking all of 10 Marines in a 60 millimeter mortar section. With three tubes. With three tubes. That's right. Were all your tubes up and running at this point or had you, had you lost a few? We were we were lucky in that regard. So our 60s were fully functional. We had all three tubes up and running, but you know that that was not the you know um, other. For example, my machine gun section. We even though we should have had six 240s, um, or we did have them. Only five were operational. We literally, even though it's wartime, you know, and we were sitting in Kuwait for weeks trying to get maintenance parts, we could not get a feed pall for one of my 240s. And so we went with five 240s instead of six. Uh, you, you would just assume that, you, I, I assumed as a lieutenant before I went to war, that if we went to war, like all these parts are going to come out of some supply depot somewhere and we're going to get what we need. But the reality is we didn't. Um, it did not always um, come together logistically the way we hoped it might have. Was the, you, you say this was the heaviest engagement you'd had. Was this the first major one? Had you been just taking pot shots? Had you taken platoon company level engagement at this point? How large of an enemy are you fighting? Yeah. Um, I would say this was probably two companies worth uh, of enemy infantry the, the, of Iraqi. Inf and this is still, this is still the main invasion, right? So this is regular Iraqi forces. This is not the Fedayeen or insurgency or any of the later stuff. These guys are actually in Iraqi army uniforms, um, et cetera. So I would say it was between a company reinforced and two companies worth of Iraqis uh, that were in this defensive position. Bravo gets hit. Charlie comes around hammerhead left. You get your tubes up, I'm assuming. Yes. And you've lost calm. At what point did yes. you lose calm? So uh, essentially, as, as soon as we had eyes on the bridge, we could see the defensive positions of the Iraqis. So the Battalion Fire Support Coordination Center is immediately requesting close air support at this point, right? So the, the moment we had eyes on, we try to do it. That As they are sending in those requests, that's when they realize that the calm architecture has failed. So thankfully, we still had our battalion, our local nets were all still functional. So all our um, VHF nets locally were up and running. So battalion TAC-1 was up, all of the company TAC nets were up. So we still had internal communication. We could still talk across the battalion just to coordinate what we were immediately doing in terms of ground scheme and maneuver. So thankfully that did not get in the way. And because we had those mortars, like my 60s were fire capped, I would probably say with it from the time they got out of the Humvee uh, to be fire capped, I would say it was probably under 45 seconds. Uh, now, did we have aiming stakes out and all that? No, we're doing direct lay, direct alignment. We can see the enemy, right? There's no time to dig a mortar pit. We're not in a, you know, defilade position, all those classical mortar things that we like to do in the defense. This is an offensive assault. Um, and so they're just immediately laying base plates and looking right through, um, their sights directly to what they can see ahead of them. And how far ahead are this, are these Iraqi positions? For, so Bravo had taken the initial engagement. They probably began to engage at um, probably 200 meters was, was probably the, you know, where, where we come out of AAVs and are now on foot. We're probably only 
200 plus, well, maybe more than that, maybe 300 meters away from the enemy um, and assaulting in at that point. And at this point in the Iraq invasion, you've, you've seen combat already. Yes. When did you know, right, like in your bones, that this was different? Huh. Um, or was it? Yeah, I guess that's that's really the shocker for me is people ask me that all the time. You know, was it different or, you know, how were you changed? For me, the shocking thing about combat, I, I think the most shocking thing was how well all our training worked. I, you know, I had this thought going through the basic school, going through infantry officer course. We had almost no combat veterans as our instructors. So my thought was like, how well have the lessons of war been preserved from the last generation that really did this at large scale? Is is what we've been taught right? That's what I'm thinking. And I guess the big shocker for me was we really did preserve the lessons correctly. All the TTPs they taught us worked incredibly well. Um, it, it was sort of mind boggling to see how effective we were Um in these engagements. That was the shocker for me. The engagement at the bridge, when it happened, did you know it was different or was it, was there any sense at the Lieutenant level at the, the weapons platoon commander level that this was a different type of fight than what you'd seen already? Well, uh, yeah. So I guess I didn't answer your question from before we had already been in, in several significant gunfights. So this was not our first one. Um, so it wasn't like this was a quantum leap, of, you know, more than it was. It, it was definitely the most intense gunfight we had had up to that point, but it, because we'd already been in some, some real gunfights, um, we were not shocked by it. It wasn't, um, something we weren't ready for. Um, so in that sense, it was a smooth transition for us up to this gunfight. 200 meters, 300 meters away. The Iraqi positions are on the other side of the bridge or on the near side? Um, it was sort of strange that the, the way it went, um, we were basically, we did not have to cross a river or anything like that. The bridge was there, but there was open because of the, the Iraqi flat terrain. There was not like a major river that we had to deal with. It was basically just a, you know, a small wadi more than anything else that we could traverse by foot. So we didn't have any tough terrain or anything to deal with. They were, uh, they had positions on both sides of, of the low ground. Um, but so, yeah, we're engaging them on both sides of that. How long, right? You've given us 45 seconds from out of the track to tubes hot. Yep. And, and you're fire capped. You start putting mortar rounds on fire. I'm assuming the rest of the Charlie company starts firing direct fire as well. Correct. How long does this engagement last? Ah, uh, wow. I would say, I'd say we're done within 25 minutes. And it might have been, it, it definitely, the hottest part was done within, I'll say 15 minutes, but there were, because they had enough trenches, they had actually dug a, a legitimate defense, right? They had positions in depth. Um, they were competent. Um, it, it took a while to clean out the last trench lines, right? The trench lines are hard because you can't see into them until you're up on them. 
And so that clearing, and it, maybe that final clearing even took longer than that. Uh, but in in the last part of that duration of the, of the actual gunfight, we were able to get Cobras on station. So they were, you know, fire support coordination center at the battalion headquarters. It's mobile right there in an AAV, just like the rest of us were. They're able to get the comm fixed. They brought in Cobras. And ultimately, we did get Cobra strikes that, that ended the gunfight much quicker than it would have if we were not able to get those Cobras on station. And what was your role with those Cobras? Or had they all gone to Bravo Company as the priority of effort? Yeah, exactly. Um, all, all the airstrikes were directed by the um, forward air control with Bravo Company at that point. So the only thing I really, the only fire support piece that I really played at all was uh, just directing the company 60 millimeter mortars during that gunfight. Battle starts wrapping up. Are you taking prisoners? Have the Iraqis fled? Yeah, so... Um, some of them f- attempted to flee during the engagement. Not many. Most of them stood and fight. But like we saw one or two motorcycles. Like, and again, th- those might have been messengers trying to get out. Who, who knows what that was? But definitely, a couple tried to escape on motorcycle. Um, the the vast majority uh, fought from their trenches and continued to fight and were, were just killed in the trenches. Um, some did surrender at the end, and so. Then we, you know we have to deal with all the things you have to deal with. Right now we have uh, enemy prisoners of war. We and this was not the first time we had done that. We had actually taken our first POWs the first night um, when we um, took the the oil fields. There there were people that that surrendered that first night as well. And so there's lots of injured. Uh, battalion um, aid station is busy treating these guys for gunshot wounds, et cetera, et cetera. And fascinatingly, their actual commander had been away from the position at the time that we went into the fight. And so he actually was driving a civilian truck, like a nice brand new Toyota, Toyota civilian truck. And he comes into the position as the gunfight is, is winding down. Um, he immediately surrenders, got out of the vehicle, put his hands up and we were able to take him in. And uh, again, I w- I didn't play any role in that, but I know we pushed him up to, um, our S2 shop, our Intel shop. And again, I, am sure they, you know, asked him what he knew, et cetera, et cetera. What happens after the battle? You've got your battalion aid station up, you're taking prisoners. How long are you static or is it, Hey, we're leaving the station, get back in the tracks. We got to keep pushing. Yeah. So, um, because our mission was to seize the bridge, we actually stayed there for a while until we got relieved. And I don't even remember which unit relieved us on the bridge, but we ended up building a hasty defense there. It wasn't right on the bridge, right? They had already registered um, indirect fire targets on the position, right? So we clearly flowed out of there so that we're not easily targeted just off our proximity to the bridge, right? So we pushed past it um, so that we clearly have the bridge secured and have, have some buffer ground. But um, we didn't push, push up much further. Our job was to hold that bridge until Hire sent someone else to hold it. And then we could push up back with the rest of the regiment and get back in the main line of battle. So couple hours, half a day. I'm trying to remember. I'd have to go back and check my journal. I believe we spent the night there. Um, and and so, you know, what, what does every night look like in, in an invasion like that? We're moving as fast as possible. So when every, every night when we would dismount out of vehicles in nights that, you know, some nights we, we moved basically the whole night long because it was such a fast push. But it, on a night like this uh, where we did stay in position, 
every Marine would dig a um, skirmisher's trench, right? Just a super shallow um, skirmisher's trench. And, and that's where everyone would sleep uh, was in those skirmisher's trench, right? And we're generally at 50% alert throughout the night. Uh, but we stayed relatively local to that bridge. Again, I don't think we got relieved on the bridge until maybe mid-morning the next day. When you're down, what are you doing? What are you as a platoon commander out doing? Yeah, so um, I'm talking with my Marines as much as possible, um, you know, because as a weapons platoon commander, my machine gun section, my assault section, they're attached out across the company. I'm going, and, and I trust all the platoon commanders they're, you know, attached to. They're some of my best friends on the face of the earth, uh, but it's still good for my Marines to see my face come around. So when we get downtime, I'm checking in with them. We're all doing weapons maintenance all the time. Even obviously we just had a gunfight, so there's ton, tons of weapons maintenance to be done. But even every day when you're in a place like Iraq, the, the fine powder dust sand is constantly in everything. So every day, multiple times a day, weapons maintenance. It's just nonstop. Um, and then we're always improving the position, right? We don't know how long we're going to be here. So we're constantly, you know, the, we get a quick skirmisher's trench dug in a position just so we have some level of protection from indirect fire if indirect fire comes um, during the night. Uh, but we're constantly improving the positions until we get that order to roll out. So there's really never downtime. Um, you know, you got even if we're at 100%, in terms of no one's in the bag, um, you got people digging, you got people providing security. Um, you know, pe people are coming around with, you know, water can refills from the company gunny. It's, it's not a lot of sitting on your butt unless you like the, the best thing you can be is on security for an, for an individual Marine. That's when you're getting the most rest. Uh, cause otherwise you, you're, um, swinging your shovel or your pick to be an improving, improving the defensive position, or you're running logistics around the company. How much did that change when you went back? In 2004, it was drastically different. Um, second tour, we operated out of a forward operating base where we had internet. Marines could get, they could email their wives or their girlfriends almost every day. You know, sometimes internet would be down or sometimes we'd be out on long missions for multiple days. But the norm was if you were at the forward operating base, you could get on a computer. You might have to wait an hour or two, right? You know, that type of thing. Um, but you could get internet access. So 12 months later, it was drastically different. It was, uh, it's amazing how quickly uh, we were able to establish infrastructure within 12 months and have a totally different level of communication to the point where, you know, when we came back in 2004, we actually had a little chow hall in our on our four, we were off of a fairly small um, forward operating base outside of Fallujah, and they had big screen TVs in our little chow hall running the news. And I mean, it was not good, right? This is the beginning of, of the real insurgency. Um, the headlines were not great. They were not motivating for our Marines to be seeing in the chow hall. And that, that was so really different change within 12 months. Any final words? As we go to wrap up this episode of the spear. No, um, I, I guess the thing I would just say is, um, the training standards you learn are there for a reason. If you enforce those standards, if you take those standards to heart, if you master those standards, you will be ready. Um, diligence, hard work, application of the standards goes so much further than I ever could have imagined it would.
Carl, thanks for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tim. This is great. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.